Welcome to the Lancet Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, North American Executive Editor. In the last issue of The Lancet, we ran an editorial called The False Hope of the Right to Try Act. This piece of legislation, which was signed by Trump on May 30th, 2018, is essentially a reformulation of the existing U.S. Food and Drug Administration's Expanded Access or Compassionate Use Program, which allows terminally ill patients to apply for access to experimental drugs. In other words, drugs, biologics, devices that have completed phase one testing, but which have not been granted approval by the FDA yet. As editorial suggests, the Right to Try Act removes a barely existent barrier. We felt that this was an important topic to acknowledge and to point out that how the law has been portrayed is disingenuous to the patients that it actually claims to be serving. But the backstory of the political machinations and the idea of the FDA as being in the middle of this tug of war, it's really an interesting one. And a lot of the reporting on the topic is fairly neutral in presenting the ideas of who the power brokers are, and it doesn't necessarily illuminate some of that conflict in the U.S. right now regarding how permissive the FDA should be with respect to drug approval. So to augment the position that we took in the editorial, which is that the Right to Try Act is more about optics and politics and less about truly helping patients, I reached out to chat with Dr. Prasad. Dr. Prasad has a very loyal following on Twitter for his tutorials, and for those of you who are not as familiar, they're more or less mini interactive lectures that are via tweets. And one of his more recent tutorials is a really compelling snapshot laying out some of the issues around what was then the Right to Try bill, and which is now the act that's been signed into law. So I found it very informative, and I hope that we can recreate some of that here for you in podcast format. So hi, I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor who does research in evidence-based medicine and health policy. I thought where we could start is to give a description by way of your tutorial about where the FDA is on the regulatory spectrum, because I think it might not be as clear for an international audience about where it actually stands. I wanted to start this tutorial off with, you know, some background for people who may not be familiar with the FDA, but I really think, you know, I don't envy the FDA. I mean, I think they do a good job and they have a difficult job, which is that they sit in the center of different ideologies, pulling them in both directions. And so I think there's kind of a spectrum of drug regulation and they sit in the middle. So let me guess, take you through the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, we have a strong deregulation or perhaps even libertarian ideology in the United States, which says there shouldn't even be the FDA. We should just have drugs uh, be offered to patients, compete on the free market. There was actually a, a nominee whose name was floated around for the commissioner of the FDA position, and he had said something like, instead of the FDA, quote, we can do vastly better than the FDA with a Yelp for drugs, meaning that we should just let people try whatever they want and review it on Yelp like we do any other product. So that's on the extreme, I think, deregulatory side. I think many of us felt that that was a bad idea because people sick and vulnerable and frail may not be in the best position to be taking very strong or potent chemical agents and then being fit enough to write lengthy Yelp reviews to guide other people. So I think that's actually a pretty foolish idea. In the middle, I think, is where the FDA currently sits, which is they allow drugs to market based on 
evidence of some early safety through phase one testing and some evidence of efficacy often for a surrogate endpoint or a measure of blood cholesterol or sugar or tumor size on scan and not a clinical endpoint or an endpoint that intrinsically matters to patients. And in the device space, I think the FDA is even worse than that, allowing many devices to market that can be indwelling and spend years in bodies with very little evidence that they actually improve the well-being of patients. And I think that's a topic that's perennially discussed. But that's where the FDA is currently. Some drugs we bring to market, we know they improve survival or quality of life, but many, many other drugs, we only know they improve surrogate endpoints. On the side that's pushing for perhaps more or more thoughtful regulation, I pointed out that I kind of feel as if I'm on that side. One little step forward is some of us feel that the FDA could improve a little bit by being more cautious in the use of regulatory approval pathways like accelerated approval versus regular approval. Accelerated approval is a great pathway for surrogate endpoints because they're post-marketing studies. Regular approval does not usually have those um, post-marketing requirements. And we've seen the FDA use the regulatory process, regular approval for surrogate endpoints that are really unvalidated. And I've been a big critic of that in the cancer drug space because it really takes away that post-marketing study. I think another th place people criticize the FDA is when they do require post-marketing studies to show benefits on quality of life or survival, they are often not completed or delayed or, and there doesn't seem to be much of a penalty for doing that. And then the other thing that is a perennial source of complaint is that the patients on clinical trials, they actually don't look like real Americans. They tend to be younger with fewer comorbidities. And when you start talking about toxic drugs with narrow risk-benefit balances, as you push them into older age groups or more sicker patients, that balance may tip. And we really don't answer that question very well in cancer medicine, which is my field. And we feel that the FDA could do a better job of making sure trials look like actual Americans. Um, and then on the, the most extreme end of better or more thoughtful regulation or more regulation. There's some of us who even feel like the entire system where the design and conduct of clinical trials is in the hand of manufacturers who may stand to make tremendous profit from the results of those trials, that's a flawed system. A better system would be for a third party, perhaps a governmental agency or a non-governmental agency, to design and conduct clinical trials of drug products in a way where you don't find some of the common things you see about randomized trials, which is the comparator was a straw man or it didn't have U.S. standard of care when you had uh, the disease get worse on treatment and that the trial looked as if there was a thumb on the scale, that there's something about the design that favored the manufacturer's drug. Those of us who keep seeing these design elements in trials and complaining about them, we feel like, well, we shouldn't be so surprised. When you allow the manufacturer of the product to design the trial, of course, with so much money at stake, they would try to optimize the trial to show their product works. Instead, we think a better way would be a third party to design a more fair trial to answer questions that actually face people in the real world. So anyway, I, I say this to say there is a spectrum here. The FDA is in the middle. Perhaps they've moved a little bit more towards the deregulatory side in the last 10 or 15 years, and there are people on both sides pulling them. And against this backdrop, we come to the right to try laws. So that's a perfect seg. And I really liked the metaphor of Yelp for drugs that's sort of been rebranded as the right to try. And using that setup, can you tell us about what, in your mind, the legislation says that it would do? versus what it actually does. And, and maybe perhaps you could touch on the compassionate use mechanism that's already in place. There are many patients who 
run out of proven options in many different conditions, uh, often in cancer medicine. And oftentimes in cancer medicine, doctors are able to improvise with our best biological reasoning or using some of the existing drugs on the market. Sometimes people feel very excited about a new drug that may be coming through the pipeline. And for years, if you have fell into that latter category, you were excited about a new drug coming down the pipeline, there was a mechanism by which a patient could get that. It was called expanded access or compassionate use. It involved a very simple process, which was the doctor and the patient would have to think that was a good choice. They'd have to get the approval of the company that makes that drug, who could either give them that drug for free or sell it to them at the manufacturing price. Since selling to them at the manufacturing price would require disclosure of the manufacturing price, interestingly, we saw a lot of people giving it to them for free when it was used because people didn't want to disclose that information. And it had to get approval from the FDA, which was a individual patient approval for which the FDA has granted 99.4% of approvals. So the FDA were, was granting that. And in the rare instances when the FDA did suggest you not try that or you, you think about it a little bit more, they often had clarifications for the dose you would try, things that arguably would make that a more safer experiment than just to try it. So that was a compassionate use program. But there were group, there are many groups in, in this country who feel strongly about moving the, the conversation towards the Yelp for drugs direction. And they saw, I think, a rather clever opportunity with Right to Try, a legislation that would circumvent the FDA that would say if the doctor, the patient, and the company all agreed, that's enough and we don't need the FDA's input. And although it's portrayed as if the FDA was the barrier to these choices, as I mentioned, 99.4% of requests were approved by the FDA. And in fact, nobody knows the percent of requests approved by the companies, which have been the true barrier to this kind of experimentation because no one's tracking that statistic. And companies have perhaps maybe rightly or wrongly, they are reluctant to engage in these relationships because they are worried that a bad outcome in this compassionate use instance could thwart the drug development program. Why take a gamble when there are multi-billions of dollars on the line that some very bad outcome might derail the whole drug approval process? Now, I know the FDA has put out a publication that suggests that that actually almost never happens and companies are wrong to be fearful of this pathway. But nevertheless, I think that fear is a real fear, even if it is not rationally motivated. We've been talking here about potential barriers, but it really brings out the question of who actually benefits from this legislation. In the editorial, we touch on the fact that groups like ACS, the American Cancer Society, and ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, have already expressed concern about this. And Scott Gottlieb himself, Trump's FDA commissioner, questioned whether or not this was even implementable in terms of the legislation. So who stands to gain from this? I think it's really an important question. And especially for those who might find our system for drug approval more obscure, it's to identify where this tug of war is actually happening. I think what makes the right to try narrative compelling and clever is it sounds to the public as if patients are the ones benefiting from this bill, but that's not the case. I think the people benefiting from this bill are the strong forces that want to weaken the FDA, deregulate drug approval processes, to deregulate the regulatory system broadly. Those are the groups that are really benefiting. They're the groups that wrote this bill. They're the groups that passed the bill. And I guess I would say, I mean, one of the things I pointed out was if you really cared about patients, I noticed there's some interesting things that aren't in the bill. There's no right to have all of the drugs that are approved and that we know benefit patients to have those be affordable or available. That's apparently not, not worthy of being in the bill. There's no right to have pharmaceutical companies make drugs with bigger magnitudes of benefit to push for more innovation in this space. That's not in the bill. There's no right not to go bankrupt from paying for the drugs you need. There's
there's no right to make the company give you the drug. If it was really about empowering patients, why not compel the company to give the drug? No, it only tries to omit the FDA's role in this space. I think those of us who've looked at this bill and those of us who follow this process feel as if the real purpose is to weaken the FDA. And recently, we were vindicated when Senator Ron Johnson wrote a letter to Dr. Gottlieb saying specifically, the purpose of me writing this bill is to weaken the FDA. It is not, that is the goal of the bill. Uh, and he, he made that explicitly clear in his letter. And so I think that patients, sadly, are being used as a pawn in a broader political discussion. And just emblematic of that, I just recently read on June 5th that uh, in STAT, a doctor whose daughter suffers from a very rare genetic condition, write an article in STAT called The Cruel Joke of Compassionate Use and Right to Try, Pharma Companies Don't Have to Comply, in which this doctor agonizes over how this almost feels as if a, it is a, is a trick. It's a cruel joke. It didn't allow him to get access to a drug that he wanted access to. Thanks for listening. Until next time.